So the names and titles of Christ in the Old and New Testaments. First, uh, Christ as the Son of Man. <clears throat> this title was Jesus' preferred way to speak of himself. It's found about 50 times in the four Gospels, and it was never attributed to, attributed to him by others, only himself. The New Testament no longer uses it, uh, Son of Man, after the death and resurrection of the Lord, except for Acts 7.56, which is probably means that he alone used it um, rather than having uh, others uh, sort of give him that title, as you'll hear in certain other circles of, of teaching. So it wasn't invented by others to deify uh, Christ or to say something merely about his humanity, but it was this, this was a title that Christ gave of himself or spoke of himself. So instead of the church um, later imposing the title back onto Jesus, it makes sense to believe that in his own lifetime, he was using Son of Man in terms of the original text in Daniel 7, which would have been perfectly understandable to his Jewish audience. So Richard uh, Bauckham shows the basic methodology of uh, form criticism. So form criticism would say that, well, uh, others came along after Christ and invented these things of Christ uh, to make him bigger than what he is, essentially. Um, and again, uh, Richard Bauckham shows the basic methodology of form criticism. He says, although the methods of form criticism are no, no longer at the center of the way most scholars approach the issue of the historical Jesus, Jesus it is denoted one enormously influential legacy. And what is that legacy that this form criticism has sort of given to history? That the assumption that the traditions about Jesus, his acts and his words passed through a long process of oral tradition in the early Christian communities and reached the writers of the gospels only at a late stage in the process. Mark's gospel was written well within the lifetime of many of the eyewitnesses while the other three canonical gospels were written and the period when living eyewitnesses were becoming scarce, exactly at the point in time when their testimony would perish with them, uh, they were, the, I'm sorry, would perish with them were it not to put, were not put into writing. So basically he's saying that in this form criticism, uh, the, the disciples or the apostles sort of started to form these things later on in history by word of mouth and at a time where, when eyewitnesses of the actual events would have been passing away. So it would have been a critical time for them to have this information um, in his criticism of this. Um, but in that context, N.T. Wright sort of helpfully lays out something here for us, which is reasonable. He mentions the irony of such a procedure and that scholars who easily see Daniel 7 as the background of the Son of Man assume that his audience did not also see it so that and T. Wright says, this meaning has been both wished onto Jesus by pious scholarship, eager to find vestiges of a supernatural glory for the incarnate Son of God, and snatches away from him by less pious scholarship, convinced that Jesus could not have spoken thus of himself. So the whole debate has suffered the consequences of a failure to read Daniel 7 as it was read in the first century. The phrase in its context son of man, could be taken in the first century to refer to the Messiah. I have argued that Jesus did take it and used it like that, he says. So son of man then does not simply mean Christ was a man, although it 
definitely included that. Over the centuries, the popular concept of the church has been that Son of Man refers to his divine nature and I'm sorry, Son of God refers to his divine nature and Son of Man refers to his human nature. So in church history, you sort of see that Son of God, divine, Son of Man, human. <clears throat> While it is biblically correct and necessary to hold to that one person, that one person Christ has at the same time a divine and human nature, that isn't the main point of the term Son of Man. The main derivation of the title Son of Man comes from the prophecy in Daniel 7 and a vision of what lies in the future for the four world empires already predicted in chapter two, and those are generally understood as Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, one, one succeeding another, a supernatural figure is presented in chapter seven who overcomes all human empire as he comes from the almighty God to judge with divine glory and to establish an immovable kingdom forever. So let's take a look at Daniel chapter 7. We're going to read verse 9 to 17. Daniel 7, 9 to 17. So we're going to read from 9 to 14, and I'll start at verse 9. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this figure here, this son of man from God's glorious and mighty presence is very much like the description John gives of the risen Christ in the apocalypse. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 1, and then we're going to read 13 to 18. So keeping in mind what we just read in Daniel, we'll read Revelation chapter 1, 13 to 18. Revelation chapter 1, 13 to 18. <clears throat> And in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white. We see that in Daniel 7, 9 as well. Like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. <clears throat> his feet were like, were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and I am the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Verse 19, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So this connection between prophecy and the unveiling of the Son of Man is united in Christ's taking to himself of this very title in his, in his humiliation before being revealed as the glorious Son of Man in his exaltation. Right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. There's the humiliation and then there's the exaltation of Christ. Uh, the once popular translation of scripture, the Living Bible by Kenneth Taylor, caught this significance when, he, when it frequently rendered Son of Man in the context of Jesus' usage as the heavenly one. So that definitely doesn't always accord with the way Jesus used it, but it has an important and defining place in the group of meanings around the phrase. So again, we're talking about the names and titles of Christ in the Old and New Testament, and specifically here, Christ as Son of Man. What does it mean that he calls himself the Son of Man? All right, so there are three main contexts where Son of Man is used. So it's generally pointed out by experts in this field that there are three main contexts, and those contexts are one, Son of Man statements that were part of Jesus' ministry. Son of Man statements that were part of Jesus' ministry. Let me have someone go to Luke 7, 34, and someone else, Luke 19, 10. Luke 7, 34, and Luke 19, 10. Okay, thank you. And then 19, 10, who's, who's ever there? <clears throat> All right, go ahead, look. Okay. Thank you. So there's another uh, set of uses of the Son of Man, and it's Son of Man statements relating to his suffering and resurrection. Son of Man statements relating to his suffering and resurrection. Someone go to John 6.53, and then someone else, John 12.23. And then 1223. Okay, thank you. So Son of Man statements relating to the suffering, his suffering and resurrection. And then lastly, Son of Man statements relating to his future coming. We'll talk about this, this one a little bit. But first, let's go back <clears throat> and look at Luke 958. So Luke 9, 58 shows an amazing contrast between the high and heavenly one and the poverty and humility of his earthly ministry. <clears throat> and Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. And after the conversion of Zacchaeus, 
where the sinless one had entered the home of the highly disregarded sinner, Jesus says, for the son of man is come to seek and to save the lost. <clears throat> In reference to his sufferings and resurrection, John 3.14 speaks of the son of man being lifted up on a cross as the way to salvation and healing as the brass serpent in the wilderness healed the disobedient Israelites as they looked upon it. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You remember that in the Old Testament where Israel is complaining and uh, serpents are sent upon them and they are bitten and become sick and die. Some die and Moses lifts up a bronze serpent and they look to it, those who look to it, they are healed right? In the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up, uh, and those who look to Him have the healing of uh, regeneration, okay? So there's that connection there. And then in reference to His future coming, <laughs> Matthew 19, 28 shows the once humbled Son of Man on the throne of glory. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. <clears throat> Although the prophecy in Daniel 7 did not reveal any hint of the grief and brokenness of the cross, Jesus, the Son of Man, had to experience it first and then enter into his glory, Luke 24, 26. But that grief was set forth in other Old Testament passages, such as uh, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 52, and Isaiah 53. Uh, his death as Son of Man would be followed by his victorious resurrection precisely as Son of Man, in the line with Daniel that, that Daniel foresaw. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again, Mark 8, 31. Six verses further down, Mark 8.38 speaks of the coming of the Son of Man and the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So the only time Son of Man is used after the ascension of Christ is at the martyrdom of Stephen, when he was given a look into the heavenly realm where he, where he, soon, where he would soon be going. And someone want to read that for us? Acts 7, 55 to 56, if you can see it. Thank you, Dan. So the only use of Son of Man after the ascension of Christ. So this is, a very, this is very near to what Daniel saw in Daniel 7. Uh, the state of humiliation is all past. Exaltation is now his glorious experience when he shares it with his saints. Hebrews uh, speaks of the Son of Man as well and shows just how he shares his divine glory with his people. Hebrews 2, 6 to 8 takes over Psalm 8, and we talked about that a few weeks ago as well, and puts its divine gift of dominion originally granted to humanity over and created order into the context of the coming Son of Man. So Hebrews 2 sort of interprets for Psalms 8, and you say, okay, well, is he talking about man or is he talking about Christ? Well, the answer is yes. Um, it, is the, it is the Son of Man whom the Lord is pleased with and 
who is the apple of his eye here. All right, so Hebrews 2 takes over Psalm 8 and puts, into, and puts its divine gift of dominion originally granted to humanity over the created order into the context of the coming Son of Man, into our human nature, also into the death, into the atoning death of our nature, followed by his lifting up of our cleansed humanity into everlasting glory, in which he has brought many sons to glory. So the completed work of the Son of Man included glorious victory over the devil who long loved tormenting people with fear of death. Let's take a look at a few of these verses here. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 2, uh, 6 to 8, and then I'll look at uh, 11, 14, and 16 as well. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 6. Start back up at verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So he's quoting directly from Psalm 2. Right, I'm sorry, from, from Psalm 8. And he's taking the dominion given to man and he's attributing it now to Christ. And then verse 11, I'll read here as well. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell, you, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust I will put my trust in you. And again, behold, I and the children of God, I am the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. In verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. <clears throat> Right, so Christ as the Son of Man and the, and the vindication of men and his atoning sacrifice and the lifting up of uh, humanity to an everlasting glory. All right, so another idea around the Son of Man here is that the Son of Man phrase in Daniel chapter 7 is corporate. It's not talking about Christ specifically, but it's talking about uh, a people, uh, specifically Israel. Some scholars have held that Daniel's son that Daniel, son of man, is not one person but a corporate entity, in particular, the righteousness in Israel. N.T. Wright draws together several messianic types, such as the descriptions in Daniel, in Daniel uh, Psalm 110, Zechariah 12, Psalm 2, and Isaiah 11. Um, he holds these references to lead finally to the Messiah, not to a corporate figure. Although the New Testament teaches the corporate union between Christ and his people, as in Romans 6 and Galatians 2, the actual Son of Man is an individual historical figure, one who lived a holy life, was crucified, and was raised victoriously from the dead. On the basis of who he was, his people are personally and corporately united to him in the Holy Spirit, and as such partake 
of all the benefits of his person and work. Most of the passages in the Gospels where Son of Man is used would not make much sense unless they were a reference to an individual person rather than to a corporate identity, right? So addressing there Son of Man as Christ, not simply righteous Israel, right? But Christ, the person of Christ, the person work of Christ, an historical figure, which is consistent throughout, throughout the Bible, right? So transitioning here to uh, the final kingdom of the Son of Man. Again, talking about the names and titles of Christ in the Old and New Testament, and specifically today, Christ as the Son of Man. What does that title mean? So the final kingdom of the Son of Man. James Denny, which is a mid-18th century Scottish theologian, places the kingdom of Daniel's Son of Man as the righteous successor of the previous four world dominions. Denny says, the prophet Daniel sees four great beasts come up from the sea and reign in succession, but they have their day. The dominion they exercise is taken away from them. It is transferred, and here the vision culminates to one like the son of man. The brute kingdoms are, are succeeded by a human, king, a, a human kingdom, the dominion of selfishness and violence by the dominion of reason and goodness, kingdom of God. And this, and this last is universal and everlasting. When Jesus defined it and made it his own, he intimated to those who were able to understand it his consciousness of being head of the new universal and everlasting kingdom. The wild beasts had had their time. Now the hour had come for the dominion of the human man claimed his sovereignty in Jesus. This is the root idea of the name son of man. Right, so moving from these earthly, worldly, uh, self-seeking kingdoms to the kingdom of God and Christ as the Son of Man. Yet it must be added that this succession of failed worldly kingdoms is profoundly based upon Old Testament Jewish concepts. As Ben Wetherington writes, Jesus' message was about the coming of God's dominion. He referred to himself as the enigmatic Son of Man in Daniel 7 and the Enoch literature. He presented himself as the embodiment of God's wisdom, wisdom come in the flesh. In all these regards, Jesus was presenting a religious worldview throughout, I'm sorry, sorry, thoroughly grounded in the Hebrew scriptures. He's presenting a religious worldview grounded in the Hebrew scriptures, right? So the son of man's kingdom of peace brought in by violence the son of man's kingdom of peace brought in by violence. I need a cup of water. You mind grabbing me a cup of water? <laughs> I just, my mouth is drying out. <clears throat> Thank you. So the son of man's kingdom of peace brought in by violence. A careful reading of the gospel, of the gospel accounts of the preparation for the passion of Christ will indicate that the son of man's kingdom of love and peace could only come through the hatred and violence that was to be visited upon him by the evil one and his demons and evil worldly powers. T.F. Torah shows in detail that Christ knew what he was doing and actually provoking the events that would lead to his crucifixion. Luke 12, 50 says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is 
accomplished. But this wasn't new to him. Thank you. <laughs> Winnie Palmer. <laughs> that is my wife's prized possession. All right. <clears throat> Luke 12:50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And he also mentions that Christ was in charge of everything that was happening. I mean, we know this. Christ is fully God and fully man. He, no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down. John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. <clears throat> These facts about what Jesus thought he was doing are precisely contrary to the assumptions held by so many first quest for the historical Jesus. So the Bible talks about Christ uh, knowing what's happening. He's sovereign. He's controlling all things. But there is another line of thinking that says, well, Christ wasn't fully in control. He was at the mercy of the happenings of the time, right? <clears throat> it wasn't under his sovereign control. Uh, Albert Schweitzer, Schweitzer summarizes that sort of idea. He says, in the knowledge that he is the coming son of man, Christ lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring to bring all of ordinary history to a close. But that world refuses to turn, and he throws himself on it. Then it does turn, and it crushes him. He says, instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, he has destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward on the mangled body. Thank you, bro. The wheel rolls onward on the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose. And now he's hanging upon it still. That is his victory. That is his reign. So he has this idea that, yeah, Christ, he, he wanted to uh, set himself up as this king, as this ruler, but it just didn't happen the way he wanted it to happen. He was crucified, he died, and there's no end for those who follow him. There, there's no hope for them, right? But we know that's not the case. <clears throat> if that were the case, it's a fair question to raise. Why had the Christian church been in existence for some 1,900 years, right? <clears throat> if Switzer has researched it and failed to come to this conclusion, then it's because he's missing the main point of the coming of the Son of Man. <clears throat> Would he really have bothered to do so, to do this research, to find Christ had failed, if Christ had been nothing but another long slain diluted prophet? So he's saying by the very fact that you, Switzer, are actually searching this out proves that Christ was more than you're saying he is. Right? If Christ was just another diluted prophet, then there would be no reason to research who he was and try and disprove his deity or his being the son of man. <clears throat> and so he turns his argument on his head. Ben Wetherington gets right to the point as he responds to John Dimmick Crossan's The Historical Jesus, a book even more skeptical than Sweatsers, which I just mentioned. <clears throat> Wetherington says, 
If, as Crossman maintains, all of Jesus' followers deserted him and were ignorant of the sequel other than that of Jesus' crucifixion, it is frankly, frankly unbelievable to me that there would have arisen a continuing Jesus movement at all. There would have been no church without Easter. So again, he's making it clear, this, this movement of these followers of Christ, these Christians who are becoming martyrs for their Lord, for their Messiah, is proving to us that, no, they did have something else in mind. If all they had in mind was that Christ would come and then die, and that was it, there wouldn't be this continuing movement of Christians and followers of Christ. So he's again proving that Christ is who he said he was, and specifically here, the Son of Man, and that there was a movement following Christ uh, because there is a hope after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, right? And we are the proof of that. We are the proof of the gospel being preached and bearing fruit now. Have a thought, Kareem? Right. 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 And I, I think about Romans, I think it's four four twenty-five when it says that Christ was raised for our justification. The very resurrection, our, our justification hinges on the very resurrection of Christ. So it's essential to the Christian and to the Christian faith. Um, one mm-hmm. of the pillars that we stand on as Christians is justification, directly tied to the resurrection of Christ. <clears throat> so again, he's making this point here that Christ is who he said he was, <clears throat> right? All right, let me see. Where am I at here? So the tragic result of so much um, otherwise brilliant 19th and 20th century scholarship that took the impossibility of the resurrection as a foundational premise for the interpretation of Jesus was a self-imposed blindness that could never locate him. They're saying that Jesus is not who he said he was. It's clear that he is. It's seen in the Bible, in the writings of the word, and extra-biblical writings, but they are willfully blind. Right? They don't want to accept what Jesus says of himself. Um, and therefore, their condemnation is, is set. <clears throat> the scripture tells us that the son of man, the son of David, who hid not his face from spitting, Isaiah 56, as he willingly laid down his life to a shameful death, was declared to be the son of man with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He was declared to be the son of man with power, according to the spirit of holiness. <clears throat> okay, so that, all that by way of uh, Christ as the son of man. Again, we're talking about the names and the titles of Christ used in the Old and New Testament. What does it mean that Christ is the word? What does it mean that he's the son of man? <clears throat> we'll, talk, we'll transition here to Christ as logos or the word. we've talked about this a bit in past classes but another brief word on this topic of Christ as the word or logos logos is the Greek term translated as word speech 
uh, principle or thought. In Greek philosophy, it also referred to a universal divine reason or the mind of God. In the New Testament, the Gospel of John begins, <clears throat> In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. <clears throat> Here it is clear that the word, or logos, is a reference to Christ Jesus. John argues that Jesus, the word, or logos, is eternal and is God. Further, all creation came about by and through Jesus, who was presented as the source of life. And this logos came and lived among us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's gospel begins by using the Greek idea of a divine reason or the mind of God as a way to connect with the readers of his day to introduce Jesus as God. Greek philosophy may have used the word in reference to divine reason, but John used it to note many of the attributes of Jesus. In John's use of the Logos concept, we find that Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. Go back here. <clears throat> Jesus was with God prior to coming to earth. The Word was with God. We find that Jesus is God. The Word was God. Jesus is the creator. All things were made through him. We see that Jesus is the giver of life. In him was life. And we see that Jesus became human to live among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Further, the opening of John's gospel carries a noticeable resemblance to Genesis 1.1. Just really good. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. All right, so you see this uh, resemblance of Genesis 1 to John 1. And the corresponding theme of light is also used in Genesis 1 and John 1. Logos is used in many ways, yet in John's gospel, Logos is a clear reference to Jesus, the God who both created us and lived among us. So confusion about the deity of Christ is inexcusable because the biblical teaching regarding it is clear and unmistakable. Jesus Christ is the eternal pre-existent word who, who enjoys full face-to-face -face communion and divine life with the Father and is himself God. And we talked about that. In the beginning, was in, in the, beginning the Lord created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God is speaking in, in his creation. He's speaking the word into, and, and he's creating and forming. And he's bringing what she's bringing into being that were not, right? He's speaking the word. What's the word that he's speaking? It's the Logos, Christ, the preexistent word, right? So Father, Son, and Spirit, all active in creation. We sort of talked about that a few weeks ago. But just a brief recap there. Um, I'm going to transition to seven I am sayings in the Gospel of John. So again, names and titles of Christ, Son of Man, 
Christ is the word, and then the I am sayings in the Gospel of John. As we have seen earlier, Jesus calls himself I am, as he's identifying himself with Yahweh, the name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3 as the salvation of Israel, this Yahweh. Thus, Jesus is God Almighty, God Eternal, the God of the covenant of grace, and at the same time come in the flesh fully man. Much of chapters 2 through 11 of John's gospel is based upon seven miracles, which are signs of who Christ is. The miracles point to who Christ is. Either before or after these defining miracles, Jesus says, I am, as a way of explaining what these miracles are meant to do and be as identifying him as the one who brings salvation. And in other cases, he calls himself I am in the context of major discourses and at his final crisis in Gethsemane. So let's look at a few of these I am sayings um, showing the meaning of these signs of Christ. So these sayings, he, miracle, I am, pointing to who he is. So it's pointing back to the nature of Christ. All right, so let's first look at John... <clears throat> 6, 33 to 35. So after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus seeks to turn the desires of the multitude from merely physical bread to that relationship which will give them eternal life. Someone want to read that for us? Thank you. So this saying seems to be based on Isaiah 55.1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Right, so there's a connection there as well. Uh, we, we think of a lot of, well, I should say, we have to think, we should think of the New Testament and these writings of the New Testament and the apostles as familiar with Old Testament writings. So these things aren't new, right? We see this moving throughout scripture. Um, Isaiah 55 and John 6 there, John 6, you see that, that connection. After his forgiveness of the woman taken into adultery, Jesus says, <clears throat> I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The coming eschatological age would be a time when the Lord himself would be the light of his people. Where do we see that? Revelation 21. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamp. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Right? We see that connection there with light. <clears throat> I am the light of the world. The lamp is, the lamb is the lamp. He's the light in Revelation there. In order to warn his sheep against false prophets who wish to rob them rather than save them, Jesus says, <clears throat> Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Truly, truly, or verily, verily, as it is in the King James, it's an Old Testament word of, for affirmation of God's covenant, sort of like amen. 
All right, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And verses 1 to 5 in, in, John, <clears throat> in, in John 10, Jesus the shepherd enters the sheep pen through the gate. Here, Jesus is the gate. Here, the watchman has disappeared, and the only flock in the, in the enclosure belongs to the shepherd who serves as the gate. Jesus is the gate. Uh, continuing the contrast of his ministry of that of false shepherds who fleece the sheep, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So we're seeing these I am sayings. I am, I am, I am. I am the good shepherd. Right? He indicates that as shepherd, he is in the highest relational relationship of mutual knowledge with the father. This relationship of knowledge and love between the shepherd's son and the father will lead him to lay down his life for the sheep and to take it up again. We see that in verses 17 and 18. So far from being accidental, Jesus' death is precisely what qualifies him to be the good shepherd. Um, a point presupposed by, math, by Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, which acknowledges Jesus to be the great shepherd of the sheep. Right? And after his death, Far from exposing his sheep to further ravages, he draws them to himself. <clears throat> he draws them to himself. So Hebrews picks up on that and says that Christ is the great shepherd. <clears throat> All right. And then shortly before he raised Lazarus from the dead, after four days in the tomb, Jesus said to Martha, <clears throat> I am the resurrection and, and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, so shall he live. Yet shall he live. D.A. Carson notes here the message of Jesus to Martha in his saying. Jesus' concern is to divert Martha from, I'm sorry, divert her focus from an abstract belief of what takes place in the last day to the personalized belief in him who alone can provide it. So it's not about necessarily uh, him being raised on the last day. It's about me being the resurrection. <clears throat> Just as he not only gives the bread from heaven, but is himself the bread of life, so also he not only raises the dead on the last day, but is himself the resurrection and the life. There is neither resurrection nor eternal life outside of Christ. <clears throat> Number six, another saying here, an answer to Thomas's question about how one could know the way to the Father's house where Jesus was going, Jesus replies, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. <clears throat> Only because he is the truth and the life can Jesus be the way for others to come to God, the way for his disciples to attain the many dwelling places in the Father's house. And therefore, the answer to Thomas' question in the context in this context, Jesus does not simply blaze a trail, uh, commanding others to take the way that he himself takes. Rather, he is the way. <clears throat> so it's not just simply do this thing, follow this way. No, follow me. I'm the way, right? <clears throat> Seventh and last saying here, I am saying, um, at the beginning of his discourse on the relationship of believers to him in terms of the analogy of the vine and the branches, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, or the husbandman. 
<clears throat> in addition to Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80, uh, there seems, which they, those, two verse, those two passages seem to be a background to the meaning here. I mean, you see this word vine, Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80. The true vine, then, is not the apostate people, corporate people, but Jesus himself and those who are incorporated in him. If they wish to enjoy the status of being part of God's chosen vine, they must be rightly related to Jesus. So again, not corporate, not Israel, not fallen humanity, not Adam, Jesus. <clears throat> it all comes down to the person and work of Christ. <clears throat> Are we out on time? Oh, I got time. <clears throat> he says here, I add one more to the traditional list of seven. This statement of I am is not in the same genre as the seven sayings, for, <clears throat> for they are all found in the heart of Christ's doctrinal discourses. This one is not a formal exposition of who he is, as are the other seven, but rather is overheard in the hour of his passion in Gethsemane. But I include it <clears throat> because of the remarkable power that came from what was uttered. In the mighty way, it too shows who Jesus is and expounds his relation to the Father. So... <clears throat> Douglas Kelly adds here a, a, an eighth I am saying that he, want, he wants to bring out. <clears throat> when the officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane upon his betrayal of Judas, Jesus asked them, whom are they seeking? Then occurred a supernatural event that knocked the officers to the ground with the mere mention of a name from the Lord. <clears throat> they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. That's who we're coming to seek. That's who we're coming for. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Kelly says here, it appears that at the mention of the divine name, which is that of Yahweh, I am that I am, a surge of deity ran through the manhood of our Lord. A beam of uncreated light broke through the darkness of the very on the very night where Satan was so active and overwhelmed the enemies of God and his incarnate son. The theory of Schweitzheimer, Renan and others, including the popular 1970s rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, <clears throat> they all show a delusion in themselves. The great I am was in direct control of it all, willingly choosing to lay down his life for the ransom of many. No man could take his life from him. So this I am phrase is huge for the person and work of Christ, right? It says much about who Christ is and helps us to identify him as God, Yahweh, I am that I am. <clears throat> so in a certain sense, most of what the various names and titles of the Lord Jesus entitled that the Lord Jesus conveys can be, in one way or another, included under these seven I am sayings. As Matthew tells us, following the Annunciation of Gabriel, he is Jesus, Yahweh, who will save his people. And following Isaiah 7:14, he is Emmanuel, God with us. <clears throat> and this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I remember I was hanging out with a friend who's a Messianic Jew, and I told him that my middle name was Emmanuel, 
he just scoffed. <laughs> he was just like, oh, yeah. It's like, well, I didn't name myself. That's just my middle, but my middle name is Emmanuel. It's, it's not spelled the same way. And I'm not trying to say nothing about myself, but it's, it's Emmanuel, just so y'all know. Aside. Um, all right, one more, one more thing I want to mention here. All right, other I am statements. <clears throat> the I am sayings demonstrate that he is God in his fullness dwelling in human flesh, thereby accomplishing our salvation. For instance, as Craig Bloomberg points out, several verses after Christ saying, I am the light of the world, some crucial Old Testament illusions appear that show the son's identity in being with the father. Jesus says to the Jewish authorities who were denying him, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins, John 8, 24. There is a veiled allusion to Isaiah 43:10, in which Yahweh declares himself, I am he. But by John 8:58, a clear reference to Exodus 3:14 is heard. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. And some, the Old Testament foreshadows his names and titles and sets forth in both type and event who he is and what he achieves. While the New Testament displays his infinitely perfect fulfillment of them all. The I am sayings and other titles ascribed to him in the scriptures are the overflow of the inner Trinitarian relations between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They all demonstrate the beauty of God's holiness and his love. 